Hey everyone, welcome to Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. Have you ever made a change in one of your systems or one of your tools only to realize that whatever you just changed broke something else? And then you go to try to fix the thing that you broke and yet another thing breaks? Whether it's because of poor planning or lack of context or things are just moving too damn fast, ops teams can often find themselves in these precarious games of tech stack Jenga, hoping that we can pull out the next block carefully enough so that the whole tower doesn't come tumbling down upon us. On today's episode, we're talking to someone who has mastered the operator's game of tech stack Jenga, Brad Smith. Brad is the co-founder and CEO of Sonar, a tool that helps enable teams to manage their tech stacks from a single source of truth. So who better to talk to about this than someone who spends every day thinking about not only his own tech stack, but those of his customers and the operators who run them. Prior to founding Sonar, Brad was in ops himself, leading operations teams at companies like Terminus and Gather. In our conversation, we talk about avoiding tech stack bloat, what ops teams can learn from product teams about managing changes like these, and we're going to get to learn about the time that Brad accidentally wiped out $18 million in revenue from his previous company's Salesforce instance. But first, I wanted to learn more about the challenges Brad experienced as an operator himself and what prompted him to start Sonar in the first place. It's interesting that if I were to rewind the clock and tell you the first time I started to see some of the problems we're solving for now, it might have been six, seven years ago. I uh, joined a fast-growing startup here in Atlanta called Cloud Sherpas. was there for about three years, and they ended up successfully exiting to Accenture. But when I started, I was brought on to run operations, mainly on the professional services operation side. Funny enough, I think this is so true for so many operations folks. They, they start on day one, they get done with some HR paperwork, and maybe go to lunch with some folks. And you're out when you get back in that afternoon, they're like, all right, Brad, here's your admin license for Salesforce. Good luck. Hope it goes well. Let me know if you have any questions. I'm like, fantastic. What's Salesforce? I don't even know what this is. And... I think all the folks that I talk to now from a, a Sonar perspective, a lot of our prospects and customers, I ask them their sort of origin story, like, how'd you get to where you are right now? And, and it's a very, very similar path. But I noticed some of these problems that we're solving for there, which is a big zoom out for this. There's so many moving parts to your CRM. And now we have so many different integrations that connect to it. There's just inevitably so many blind spots. So I remember making changes, of course, didn't know what I was doing for the most part. So it's very much putting my cowboy hat on and just configuring things and seeing what happened. And I remember things breaking. I remember sales reps coming over to my desk, some of my consultants coming over, marketing, finance. I mean, there has to be a better way to manage how we deliver change to our organization and really make sure that we can see all these impacts that are happening. So fast forward from Sherpas, I spent a little bit of time doing just direct Salesforce consulting, helping companies get Salesforce up and off the ground or optimizing their approach to it. I really enjoyed the, the consulting space, especially when I was doing this with Coastal Cloud, which is another platinum partner in the Salesforce ecosystem. But I really knew my spot you know, in life was in the ops side. So I moved back into operations and started at a company called Gather Technologies, which 
another local Atlanta company, fast up and coming company at the time. And same thing happened. Congratulations, Brad. Here's your new job. And here's your admin license. I was like, fantastic. And fortunately, there were some folks there that had some documentation behind what they built and why they built it. But at the end of the day, you know, the same problem was occurring. I was making some new changes to things like validation rules and process builders. And I've joked around, there's times that I would look at Salesforce and, and sneeze the wrong way and something would break. And it's really just because, again, we don't have this level of visibility that we really need. And that was one of those catalyst moments for me, mainly because I, I ended up meeting my co-founder, Jack, at Gather. And we'll get into a little bit more of how we progressed with Sonar, but he and I had a couple of aha moments as to how this gets solved. I think the biggest story that I, I go with most of the time when I'm telling folks where was my catalyst moment for why we built Sonar the way we did was when I moved from Gather to Terminus and I was a director of RevOps over there. My first project right when I got into to Sonar, or sorry, I got into Terminus was, all right, let's roll out products and price books, standard functionality for Salesforce, but you know, they weren't using it at the time. I was like, man, I got this. Perfect. Done this a you know, hundred times. This is fantastic. Great first project. Really get my get my feet wet in here. And hey, I put my old consulting hat back on. I spin up a sandbox. I build my solution and get the thumbs up from all the executives and all the VPs and all the end users. And I go to hit deploy on my change set or really just push my solution to production. Did that at 12.01 a.m. on a Tuesday night. So I guess really Wednesday morning. And do about an hour's worth of testing, you know, like a good you know, Salesforce admin does. Felt great about it, and I could sleep. I wake up the next morning at six a.m. to text messages, voicemails, phone calls, emails, Slack notifications. Brad, what is going on with Salesforce? What what is happening? And because of one small blind spot that I didn't see, because I didn't know how all these systems were interconnected, I wiped out our revenue. Oh. Yeah, which is not a fun thing to happen at the time. We we're roughly like an eighteen million dollar red rate company, and Nobody is happy with you when you take something from $18 million to $0 million. So, <laughs> Weird. Yeah, it's funny how that works, right? But I think, Brad, like one of the things that is very admirable about you and what you've done is that there are plenty of people who see a problem, right? There's plenty of people who will say, oh, you know, this part of ops is tough or this part of ops could be better. But then their knee-jerk reaction is to either – some people just complain about it and go about their day – some people will go and try and Google options to solve this problem or a software that they could potentially buy to help solve this problem. What was it about running into this problem over and over again that you said to yourself, you know what, like, I'm actually uniquely qualified to be the one who solves this problem along with Jack? Yeah, I think the, the unique side of it is just I think that I've I stubbed my toe through it for so long, for so many years, and I still have some of the scar tissue to prove some of those mistakes. But I think where Jack and I looked at each other in this unique capacity was that I kept running into the same issue where I just I knew what I was doing. I've got a handful of Salesforce certifications. I've been configuring this stuff now for years. But there's really no playbook for how to implement change within your organization. We talk about effective project management all the time and how do we make sure that we communicate directly to our go-to-market teams why we're making the changes we make? Well, tactically, I know how to make those changes most of the time, asterisks, because sometimes I clear out a lot of revenue. But I think the bigger parts of that is we were finding so many blind spots that's, you know, the, the easy examples. How can I answer a question very effectively and easily? Where is opportunity stage being used across my entire tech stack for my go-to-market technology? Like, you know what? Anecdotally, I know the answer to that. I know 
And I've got that mapped to my marketing automation system. I know I've got it mapped to my sales engagement, my customer success platform, and my finance platform, I think. But then you start to realize, well, those are also overlapping and potentially colliding with internal automations in Salesforce. And so you know, going back to when one of those first catalyst moments when I met Jack, I was talking with him about this. And we were both, I think, about a month into our time at Gather. And I was like, man, you're a smart guy. You're over in the, the products and engineering world. I got a problem. Can you help me fix it? He's like, yeah, man, shoot. Tell me what's going on. I was like, I, I presented that same thing. I was like, I just can't wrap my head around how to visualize how all this technology is being orchestrated together. And he kind of laughed at me, Sean. He was like, that's a, that's a problem for you? I was like, yeah, man, it's a big problem for me. I can't, you know, I can't, <laughs> make, I can't make change very quickly and efficiently and safely. There's so many times that I make this change and I don't realize it's attached to something else. And now my marketing team's mad at me because I made a change with a sales team. And then success is mad because I made that marketing update. And when... I presented that to him. He's like, wow, that's, I can't believe that's a problem for you. We, as in the engineering and product world, we've solved for this. Like, I was like, well, let me put a little asterisk beside that, Jack. Y'all also are properly educated about this. Y'all have, y'all have engineers who have computer science degrees and have been doing this forever. And, and the software industry in general has been around for so much longer than truly the, the go-to-market technology side of things, right? And he came back. He's like, man, I've got a great tool belt to make sure the problems that you're facing don't hit us. You know, we get to use great things like GitHub and, and Datadog, PagerDuty, things like that to make sure we know how our integrations are working. We can propose change and really make sure that we know the up and downstream impact. And I remember like word for word out of my mouth. I was like, Jack, that's cute. We don't have that. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that was one of those, again, catalyst moments where a light bulb went off in both of our heads. You know, we can go and solve a really big problem for go-to-market operations teams who are, by hook or crook, or most of the time, voluntold, here's your tech stack, go and optimize it, or go and manage it. Here's your tech stack, go and manage it. Raise your hand if you've heard or experienced some version of that before. Brad found that these well-known, understood, and solved problems in product and engineering worlds could be solved in similar ways for operations teams. And yet, no one had done it. It sounds simple, but we've all made a change in Salesforce or some other system that has had unintended consequences. Now, hopefully not $18 million consequences like Brad, but you get my point. And so I wanted to figure out why we as operators are behind and where we might be able to avoid these errors to begin with. Does it have to do with the way we shape our teams, where one person pulls at one thread, one person pulls at another? Or are we careless? Or does it just come down to slowing things down in order to speed up later? If you think just even holistically of the impact that I made to my organization at Terminus, where I was at the time when I wiped out revenue, think about the downstream almost catastrophic impact that made. By wiping out essentially all opportunities and all the, the revenue associated to them, our sales reps couldn't manage their pipeline. Our marketing team couldn't run reports on which opportunities we have in our pipeline, which ones we should target for you know, different advertising strategies. Our CSMs, yeah, they, they had no renewals to manage because they all had $0 bills beside them. And even all the way down to finance, they were like, man, I can't bill anybody. I don't know which uh, company is you know, late on something because essentially I wiped it all out. The impact of all that is, is again, catastrophic to your entire go-to-market and just overall company. But when you think of why it's so different, to your point, on the product side with where they make change and, and they create a new feature and test it thoroughly and then push it to a, 
a developer org to a staging org and staging to a production org, that's a totally different step in process. And for better or for worse, sometimes on the operation side, we just get to go fast. And I think that's one of the great benefits for you know, creating and developing solutions on the Salesforce platform and this entire tech stack ecosystem we talk about, but we don't follow those same processes. And more important to that, we can kind of put this process side over here in one silo, but from a communication standpoint, we also don't communicate effectively nearly as much as we should. And I think it's, again, we talk about it all the time here at Sonar. Most of that boils down to lack of visibility and even just understanding what the impact might look like to begin with. And a great example of that, I don't want to you know, over-index on big projects like adding uh, products and price books to the way you operate your opportunities. Take a step back and do a small project. You get a, a new request from the VP of marketing that says, hey, we're going to start tracking competitive intel. We just realized this new competitor popped up on our radar. Can you add that new competitor's name to our competitor list? Like, Absolutely. And that change, we know, is so simple. You go into the back end of Salesforce, you add a new pick list value, you're good to go. But what we don't always understand is how is customer success using that field? Because they're tracking competitive intel as well. They have internal business processes. They have reports they run based off this. Did they know that I just made that change? Let's talk about sales. Sales, obviously, if we're in the second half of our funnel, if we're far down funnel, we're very much tracking our competitors. Who else is this company talking to? Who are they evaluating? And if I don't tell the sales team, hey, I just added competitor number seven to this, it's out of sight, out of mind for them. They don't even know to track it because we didn't communicate it effectively. And so when we talk about how do we make these changes, some are big and some are small, but at the end of the day, they impact all of these teams significantly. And what we're trying to do and, and building for our customers is a way for everyone to collaborate and see inside one place where these impacts go all the way down to who owns that business process, how is that field being used in other places within your tech stack, to really make sure that you can effectively communicate that change up and downstream, whether it be big or small. Brad and I spent a lot of time talking about Salesforce and Salesforce-specific examples, but these problems of communicating changes, understanding the ripple effects of your decisions, looking around corners to anticipate where things might break... These problems extend far beyond Salesforce to all of the other tools in your tech stack, many of which talk back and forth with Salesforce as well. What you end up with is this vast network of plumbing running behind the scenes of these hypergrowth companies. And if you take a piecemeal approach to that plumbing, forgive me, but you're going to spring some leaks. My dad is a plumber, by the way, so all these plumbing puns are completely fair game. But with someone like Brad available to us, and he's someone who thinks about this stuff all day, my question to him was, have we gone too far? Have we reached this extreme tech stack bloat that is just too much to manage? Obviously, in the space we're in, Sean, so many people come to me, especially as we're showing our product off or talking to our customers and prospects like, hey, Brad, I, I know you've looked at this space for so long. You know almost every system and every tool out there. Is this the better one? Should I use this? And I tell folks all the time, as politely as I can, if your first strategy is to throw technology at something, you're not on the right track for your strategy at all. Let's rethink your strategy. Because to your point, there is so much technology out there. And I can't throw that much shade. We're one of those new pieces of technology that are coming out. And so what I tell folks all the time is understand what your problem is first. 
do yourself some diligence and see what it takes for you to truly understand how you want to solve this for your company. Begin with the end in mind. You know, these are all goofy cliches, but really think about what you're solving for. What does success look like? Work backwards from that. Try to understand, is this a process thing that we need to optimize for internally? Do I need to make sure our company knows what step one plus step two plus step three looks like? And honestly, if there's 18 steps, how do I get those down to 10? That's you know, that's the genesis of what we're trying to do with operations, right? It's trying to be efficient and give our entire go-to-market team so much power to go and do their job better. There is a tipping point, and you are spot on with saying this. There's times that we throw too much technology at this, and the tech stack gets bloated, and we see the downstream impact of that. You throw nine different tools over to an SDR or an AE team, do you think they know how to manage every one of those, be efficient with every one of those, and all the way down to the process of, man, I just set a new demo. Great. I got to go check four boxes here. I got to change something here. I need to go high five the person across the room. What does that process look like? And are we actually being efficient with it at all? I push back often to our customers, all the folks that we talk to in the ecosystem. So understand what your problem is first. By all means, please don't just try to toss technology at it. We're all already spending a ton of money on the go-to-market technology that we have. And all of it is fantastic. And they all serve different points for solving very big problems for our company. But you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't understand what your problem is to begin with, you're probably going to make a mistake and spend a lot of money that you might not really need to spend. And I feel like too, you know, you just harped on what the end user experience is, which is huge, right? Because they're feeling complete tool fatigue. But you also have these ops teams who are then left holding the bag for the ongoing maintenance and management of these tools, right? This has happened to me so many times where somebody from one of the internal teams will say, oh, we're looking at this tool, but don't worry, we've already asked them about the Salesforce implementation and it's super easy. A lot of times like that might be true, but it's not about the first week, right? It's not about the initial implementation. It's about the ongoing use cases and maintenance and administration of a particular tool like that and how it's going to be used both in relation to the other tools you have, but really in relation to how your company goes to market. If you have this one video tool or something like that, that is going to be used for training on your website, but then you have a different tool that is for how people are going to consume written training on your website, like, okay, how do those things talk to each other? Are we going to know when someone completes one course in this tool and a different course in this tool? That to me is also really interesting is the ongoing maintenance that you then end up with. And so you end up with a team that is spending all their time exclusively on maintaining tools and very little on actually creating value for the business. Yeah, you're spot on. And I think this is, Sean, one of the coolest parts of of now my job and, and some of the conversations I get to have because our sales team is obviously working very closely and hands on with the folks that are using our product and, and they're loving that. But a lot of my job and responsibility is make sure that you know, I have that executive connection with the company that we're talking to. Make sure that the you know, the leadership side of the house knows why this is important as well. And one of the questions I ask every single executive every time I get on the phone with them is, tell me however long this person's been there. Let's say it's Sean at Drift. You hired Sean to do what? Tell me exactly what value he's bringing to the organization. And you know, most of the answers I get back from the VP of sales, the CRO, the CEO, the CFO, he's like, oh man, Sean brings so much strategic knowledge to our organization. The fact that he has his finger on the pulse and he gets to help me understand what does our pipeline look like? 
where are our bottlenecks and our processes here? Which industries are we excelling in? Which ones are we performing low in? And a lot of that really boils down to strategy and being very strategic in what we do. And of course, every executive knows that there's some tactical ownership of how do I orchestrate this system? Oh, yeah. He also you know, gives the Salesforce licenses out and sets people up on other sales engagement tools and makes sure the marketing automation platform works right. And they know that's a responsibility. But the first thing I ask, what value do they bring? Like, oh, my gosh, this strategic business intelligence. I'm like, fantastic. Love that answer. Completely agree. That is at the epicenter of what operations should be providing to a company. Do me one favor. Go ask that same person we're talking about. Go ask Sean that same question, but in a little bit of a different manner. Just go ask him you know, on a daily basis or on a weekly basis, how much of your time is spent being strategic versus tactical. And every time they usually come back like, oh my gosh, it's the inverse. Our, our folks are spending way more time orchestrating this crazy complex tech stack, putting out fires everywhere, helping sales reps troubleshoot why they can't create a quote the right way, things like that. And, and I think it's this aha moment for a lot of the executive side of the house too, because they, they know in principle the value that operations brings. But Unless you're sitting right beside them day in, day out, and seeing all the different hoops we jump through and all the different roadblocks we run into, it's hard to understand what split of tactical versus strategic that we really run into. So it's always that aha moment that I get. And of course, I'm kind of smiling ear to ear because we, we can help solve for a lot of that. But it's so true. This split of tactical and strategic, and to your point, how much time does one really spend just managing the technology that helps our go-to-market teams thrive is a lot. It can be burdensome sometimes. I'd encourage you to try out Brad's experiment for yourself. Ask yourself, what percentage of your time are you spending on the proactive, strategic work that's hopefully creating value and driving new insights for your business? And then what percentage of your time is spent on the more tactical, tool-based administration and upkeep? Then, in your next one-on-one, ask your boss or your CRO or your VP of marketing, whoever, what their expectation is for this split on your time. Just like Brad said, I bet that this prompt will trigger some really interesting and revealing conversations. But having the conversation is only the first part, right? On this show, we've always tried to arm you with tactical ways you can better work as operators within your hypergrowth companies. So I asked Brad, after this conversation, if I find myself on the wrong side of that split, what do I do? How do I, along with my teammates, fix that problem? How do I meaningfully move the needle towards the more strategic end of the spectrum? Ask a ton of questions. And that sounds cliche, right? Like, oh yeah, of course you want to ask a ton of questions. You want to understand why people are asking for these changes. But I think one of the biggest responsibilities and one of the jobs that operations has to do, it's not always the, the most fun one, is to say no. And there's a very delicate and eloquent way to do that. But I think what we're learning is that the persona, the Brad Smiths of the world, the Sean Lanes of the world, all these fantastic operations leaders, they want to satisfy their go-to-market teams. So almost our initial knee-jerk reaction to most questions like, absolutely, we could do that. You got a big problem? Let me solve that. But I think we need to slow down sometimes, really pressure test what this new problem we're facing is or how we're trying to optimize for things. Because I think the old adage, it's tough to be a yes person or a yes man resides here because 
we get overloaded with requests and some are big, some are small, but if we don't pressure test exactly what we're about to create these solutions for and why they're important to the organization, we're going to move fast, we're going to break things, and things are actually going to slow down because of it. So now, as I'm talking to other operations leaders who are saying like, oh man, I've got this project list of 100 plus items that I've backlogged on, I've pushed back a little bit. Like, Which one of those items are mission critical? Or have you talked with everyone in the organization as to why that change is important? It's almost counterintuitive because we want to be supporting our, our go-to-market teams. We want to provide new solutions. But if we don't truly understand at the core what we're trying to solve for and we move too fast, we really try to just build something incredible but don't know how it's going to impact all of their teams, we're, we're setting ourselves up for failure. What's really interesting about that, right, is when you talk about how we're moving really fast and we are supposedly brought in by the CEO or by leadership to play this strategic role, a lot of times moving really fast and saying yes to everything actually flies in complete contrast to that, right? Like you are literally going in the opposite direction of what it was meant to be. Our VP uh, of sales ops at Drift, Laura Aiden, she has a saying where she says, smooth is fast, slow is smooth. And it's kind of just like, you have to really stop and think about it. Smooth is fast, slow is smooth, but it, it's really just everything has to be this orchestrated motion that when things are moving like that, all of a sudden things do seem to be slowed down and you don't have this crazy rushed feeling to it. And I'm curious, right, when you're talking to these different CEOs, every single time someone tries to sell us on a piece of software like this, they're talking about the ROI of one of these pieces of software, right? And then we, or whoever the champion is, goes back internally and makes this business case for why we should get this thing, because here's the return on investment of, of this tool for our business. And I'm curious how you think about the ROI of these tools and the time spent on it by ops people versus what's just the pure ROI of an ops team, right? And does all the work we're spending on these tools hinder that ROI? Does it boost it? Like, I have not figured that out. Yeah. I think it's a question that we obviously run into with every single customer we talk to. I challenge it a lot because I think the historical sense of ROI that we always hear, I was like, what's the return on my investment? And everybody's mind starts to associate dollar in, dollar out. What does my output look like from a revenue side? Because we're talking about return on a monetary investment. If I'm putting money into something, how much money am I getting out? And we've never really had anybody come to us and say, Hey, Brad, we've been using Sonar, but I don't have any new leads. Like, well, sorry, that's not exactly the world that we live in. So <laughs> hopefully that was not the expectation. But hey, Brad, we didn't close any more deals this month. I don't get it. Nobody's coming up to us with that, but they are asking for sometimes monetary. Like, how does this actually move our revenue needle? And I push back and I challenge, well, well hang on. Before we talk about any ROI of the dollar in, dollar out on any software, let's talk about the ROI on RevOps. What are you goaling your RevOps team to do? Obviously, spoiler alert, unless somebody can kind of prove me wrong most of the time, not too many RevOps leaders are closing deals. Uh, they don't have a quota to hit. They don't care your quota. So it's one of those things that you have to kind of sit back and zoom out and say, what is my ROI on RevOps? Are we making sure that our go-to-market team is up and running? And by up and running, I mean, are they educated on the technology we're already using? Are they educated on the process that we're following? And most importantly, are they maximizing the use of that efficiency 
to bring revenue into the company. Our support role in all this is to make sure that the lights stay on and the wheel spins fast. And so if you're goaling your RevOps leaders and your RevOps teams to make sure that their go-to-market teams are, in fact, educated, enabled, and making sure that their business processes are buttoned up and airtight, of course, that's going to have an impact on how your business performs, the quality of the day spent in the life of someone in marketing or sales or success is, is optimized. They aren't spending too much time doing too many tactical uh, issues or, or troubleshooting tactical issues. So we really look back at this and say, you know, the ROI on RevOps is really to make sure that that team is optimizing for efficiency across your entire company. And then we get to start peeling back into the art. Right, well, why is that important to the software that I buy, whether it be Sonar or Drift or anything else? Is that accomplishing this goal? Is it making our RevOps team more efficient to allow our go-to-market teams to be more efficient? And of course, we look back at all this, we zoom out and say, tell me about the investment you've already made, not only in your RevOps team, but in your technology as well, because those are really, really, really big investments. You want to make sure those investments have returned. And that's where we get to come in and really help make sure that not only that technology shines, but the team shines as well. But it all boils back down to what did you set a goal for when you hired this person or this team to begin with? Because that's how you really have to measure this. I think it's helpful to expand the definition of what optimizing for efficiency might mean around some of this tech stack stuff that we've been talking about, right? That doesn't just mean adding more stuff to the tech stack, right? If, if anything, like if you're looking and you're going through the exercise you just described, right? And you're hiring somebody or building out a RevOps team. And one of the bullet points you put in for responsibilities for this team is tech stack management. That means culling and refining and reducing that tech stack just as much as it means adding stuff to it, right? If you're not, if you don't have a cadence where you're going back and revisiting different things in your stack to see how they now play with the other things that you're adding in, like that's a huge part of it as well, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like if you're if you're not looking to see how exactly you know, these inputs and outputs fly, what exactly are you measuring? You gotta throw that back at the table, and, and sometimes there's some awkward silence behind that. But it's okay for that because it kind of serves as this constant reminder. Like, okay, what did we set out to accomplish to begin with, right? Not only do we create aha moments from a technology standpoint, but there are so many times when we just kind of create foundational aha moments with our customers. And like, what exactly did you set out to accomplish today? And let's work from there of how we can help optimize for that. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Great book. Can I give you two, if that's okay? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So from a business perspective, one of the funniest books, but also things I've taken away from, Quench Your Own Thirst by Jim Cook, the founder and CEO of Boston Brewery Company, Sam Adams. And God, you, you just talk about smiling ear to ear with every page you're reading. He is hilarious. And he really does bring like business value to how he launched the company. Yeah, obviously in the seat that I'm in, I'm trying to learn from the best. And so I'm reading tons of books like that. You're really trying to play to the Boston crowd here too. I get oh. it. It's very well done. Well pandered, sir. I appreciate it. <laughs> hey, you know what? I do a little of my research. I know the questions are coming. <laughs> I will say this too. The other one, non-business related, The Cost of These Dreams by Wright Thompson. So he's a ESPN writer and he really digs into what the sacrifice has been made to 
be at the top level. He's doing interviews with like Michael Jordan and he's trying to understand some of the other fighters that fought Muhammad Ali a long time ago. And it's just a really, really kind of level setting book to read to hear what it really takes to go and be successful. Favorite part about working in ops? Man, I'm so lucky right now because not only do I get to work in ops, but I get to talk to so many awesome ops leaders, especially like yourself. I will say watching other operations folks get so creative with their solutions is literally what wakes me up in the morning and gets me excited about what we do. But also like hat tip to everybody out there in operations because when we talk to folks and how are you solving for this issue? And they're like, oh man, here's my process. And they bring up a really cool workflow diagram, all this fun stuff. And it's watching the create creativity of all these operations leaders shine. I mean, I learn something new every day with every call I'm on. So it has to be that. We didn't even talk about this, but we will absolutely put a link into the show notes. You have also started an amazing ops community, Wizards of Ops, where a lot of those creative solutions are on display every single day. There's a Slack group, there's a website. I personally have leveraged it so many times. So from the people who have gotten a whole lot of value out of it, thank you very much for for starting that. Of course. Hey, I, I get in there every day and I learn something new every day. That's my goal is to jump in and hear how some of these folks are being creative and folks, folks like you contributing to it and the other thousand plus wizards that we have in there, you know, collaborating and networking and sharing ideas. It's phenomenal. All right. Flip side for you. Least favorite part about working in ops? I'd probably have to say how other folks outside of ops interpret operations. We struggle sometimes. A lot of folks don't know exactly what's on someone in operations plate or the level of complexity that's involved. And so I think we as operators or operations professionals have a duty to educate folks. You get that request that comes over. It's like, hey, can you just you know add the checkbox and it, it checks the guy, the thing in the place? It's like, it's not that easy that I have to understand what all of the up and downstream impacts of that are. But there are so many times that I think people underestimate how difficult it is to be in operations. And so, again, we have a duty to educate that group of folks. But sometimes that can be a little frustrating, just not knowing the full complexities behind the day in and day out of the job. Someone who impacted you getting the job you have today? Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to give a shout out to uh, to Pete Kazanji. I think a lot of folks know Pete for starting Modern Sales Pros. Pete's a, a longtime friend of mine, friend turned mentor turned, we actually bought his software, Atrium. And I was back at Terminus, use it here today at Sonar. But he has just helped push and elevate me to not only strive to be a great business leader and, and make sure my team is operating at a high level and a high efficiency, but from a community standpoint, what he's done with building MSP and how to run a truly successful community. Yeah, I learned something new from him every day. I was catching up with him yesterday. And you know, every minute I get with him is just a wealth of knowledge. So you know, have to give a hat tip to Pete for sure. Pete's great and has been on the show before as well. All right, last one. One piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. Ooh, ask questions and ask more questions and ask more questions. Find good mentors like Pete. Find people that want to help elevate you and pay that forward. Be humble. Leave your ego at the door. We talk about that every day. We walk into this in our office. We are all here to elevate each other. If we do that, we are going to be well on our way to success. But ask a ton of questions, leave your ego at the door and pay it forward. Thank you so much to Brad Smith for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. And seriously, if you haven't checked out Brad's community that he started, Wizards of Ops, 
I highly recommend it. I go in there all the time to ask questions and it's served as a phenomenal resource for me and our team at Drift. So thank you to Brad for that as well. If you've enjoyed the show today, please make sure you're subscribed so you get a new episode in your feed every other Friday. And if you're liking what you're hearing and want to tell other folks how much you like the show, leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. 